This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. so good to see you uh, this morning, this Palm Sunday, as we uh, begin Holy Week 2022, looking forward toward Easter this next week. And we're going to be in the book of Colossians this morning, but we're going to be in chapter 4. We're going to be in chapter 4 of Colossians. What I want to do this morning is to see us um, bring ourselves before God and hear a word from God about who we ultimately are in Christ, who we are in Christ. As Paul begins to wind down his, his letters, um, and if you study the Apostle Paul and his letters very much in the New Testament, you know that uh, they almost always start out theologically, uh, which is significant. And, and don't miss this. Paul is writing to men and women who are already believers, right? But he always writes to them and begins with the gospel, He begins with the theological truth about what God has been doing in Christ, what he has done and who they are then in light of that. And then he moves into practical matters. Uh, Because you are this in Christ and God has done this, therefore you live in this way. This is what characterizes you as the people of God and as individual believers. Um, My desire this morning is just to see God, my passionate prayer and hope, It's to see God, again, remind us who we are during this time that is so often little more than cultural Christianity on display for about a week in the life of our nation. We get it for about a week around Christmas, and we get it for about a week around Easter, where they are treated far more like family holidays or national holidays um, than holidays centered in the historical movement of God in and through Jesus Christ. Christ. I think we have to be reminded who we are. If you go to the grocery store now, I was there the other day. There wasn't much of anything else there, but they did have some magazine racks. And uh, the front of National Geographic had uh, Jesus on the front, some articles about him. The, The front of Life magazine had Jesus on it and some articles about him. There would have been more there if, um, if, uh, what's his name, hadn't slapped Chris Rock uh, at the Oscars. Will Smith, right? So uh, he took some of Jesus' space in the front of magazines um, after that happened. But we, we see this year by year, right? We see churches really flex in attendance on Easter, and, and largely it's not unbelievers. It's, it's people, well, I'll say this. It's not people who consider themselves unbelievers that will flood churches around the United States uh, this coming Sunday. It is people who consider themselves believers, but whose lives give little to no evidence of any kind of gospel fruit there. So churches swell at Easter, uh, and then they decrease, usually somewhere around 60% the next week, and we see this again and again and again. So it, it would cause us, it should cause us to ask ourselves, what's this week really all about? If you were here um, last year, uh, typically we'll send out email devotionals. Those will begin today if you're in our um, membership database as a regular tender uh, or member, you'll begin getting those today that will just walk you through the life of Christ during this week, where he was and what he was doing and what was going on, short devotionals um, with reading in the Gospels. I really encourage you to engage those, but what is this week all about? What is Easter really 
all about. There are some, I was uh, doing some research on this this week. There's some interesting things that, that different cultures do around the world during Holy Week. Here's a few that I found interesting. Um, in Spain, they have the dance of death. Uh, where people dressed as skeletons dance through the streets of certain cities throughout Holy Week. It's a big spectacle. People come to watch and celebrate. Um, in Poland, they have the splashing of water. Now, this one would start fights uh, in the United States. But uh, particularly tomorrow, they call it Wet Monday. Wet Monday. People uh, attempt to throw large amounts of water at each other uh, while you're out in public, just randomly. can be anybody hit by a large amount of water. Tell me that wouldn't cause law enforcement to have to get involved um, in our country. One of my favorites is in Brazil. They have the burning of Judas. Uh, they, they recreate a, a life-size um, person of Judas using straw and address him like a, a first-century Jew, and they drag him around, and they put him up, and they, uh, they beat him, and sometimes they shoot him with fireworks, and then they light him on fire. I'm not sure about that one, but it's really interesting. In Burma, they, they fly kites after a, a big meal of codfish. They trace this back um, decades and decades, uh, they believe, to a, a Sunday school teacher who was trying to explain to children the ascension of Jesus, and he used a kite to do it, and now that's become normal. And probably my favorite, no surprise in France, they make a giant omelet. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with Easter. Um, the history behind it is uh, Napoleon's troops were encamped outside a, a French city when Napoleon was a dictator and leader of the military there, and he ate an omelet that was so good, he um, ordered that one be made that his entire army could eat from. So I don't know how big it was, but I know today they use a little over 15,000 eggs, 40 cooks, and a massive pan. Uh, the cooks have these, these long, almost uh, canoe paddle things that they stir the pan to make a huge omelet. Uh, again, I don't know what this has to do with Jesus. I don't know what eggs have to do with Jesus either, um, picking up colored eggs filled with candy and change and whatever else we put in there. Um, but it shows you the tremendous confusion we have around what this is all about. There'll be all kinds of people that will be joining us uh, next Sunday, and I hope they do because I believe in the gospel. Many of them will be here just out of curiosity because grandma or mom wants them to be. Um, and most of them will believe they're Christians. But I want to tell you right up front where we're going here and who you are in Christ, right? From Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. In 2 through 6, the apostle Paul would say that to be in Christ means that you are people who are prayer-centered, who are Christ-centered, and who are mission-centered. That there's no distinction between being a Christian and being a person who is prayer-centered Christ-centered, and mission-centered. Let's look at what the Apostle Paul has to say in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that 
you may know how to answer everyone. Let's pray before we move through this a bit expositionally. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this moment where we can gather together, God, as your people in your house, in this place physically built and devoted to your glory and your mission. God, I pray that you would um, increase in our own lives our centeredness in prayer, in Christ, and in your mission. God, form us into a people that with joy and gratitude and generosity follows you without reservation, God, with no one and no thing above you in our lives. God, form us into a people who are repentant and confessional, committed to one another and to you. God, who understand and are delighted by and captivated by the supremacy and glory of Christ. That our lives might be used by you to draw others to yourself. Open your word now to us, God, in a living and active way. Pierce not only our minds, but our hearts. I pray confidently and expectantly and dependently. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, let's talk a little bit about being uh, prayer-centered. Being prayer-centered. Let's, let's be honest for a minute. This won't be all of you, but let's just see. Uh, for, how, for how many of you this morning would you say a consistent, regular, meaningful routine of prayer day in and day out is just difficult for you? It's difficult. Yeah. Hands went up low on that. Someone went up high. But yeah, that's a lot of us. That's a lot of us. Can I just say, there's a reason Paul had to continually urge and remind the churches he wrote to to be faithful in prayer, to continue in prayer. Don't feel bad about that. Prayer is a challenge. Prayer is the, the highest spiritual work you and I will ever do. Prayer is among the most transformational practices you and I will ever engage in. Not only for its effect on those people and circumstances for which we're praying, but most specifically on us as we pray. And God recenters our lives. Paul reminds the Colossians, and prayer and gratitude are a theme throughout the book of Colossians. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. Being devoted to something is noticeable to those around us. If you're friends with someone, you know the things they're devoted to. You know the food they're devoted to. You know the teams they're devoted to. You know the shows often they're devoted to. Paul says we are to be known as people devoted to prayer. That to be Christian is to be someone who is devoted to regular, meaningful interaction with God. He says to do this being watchful and thankful. And this idea of, of being watchful is being aware that our lives now have been recentered around the coming kingdom of God, that God is at work in human history. 
that human history is going in one direction and God's going to bring it to its ultimate end in his glorious purposes one day. And that should reorient our lives so that we think about time differently. We think about prayer differently. We pray expectantly. We pray expectantly. Now this is hard, isn't it? Some of you this morning have just, you've given up praying for a wayward child. Not because you don't believe God can do something, but because you've felt years of heartbreak around unanswered prayer. Some of you have given up praying on a marriage that you just think is not going to get any better. Some of you have given up praying about a job or a hope or a dream that you sense God has made you for and has called you to, and yet you, you pray and you pray and you pray and there's silence. Maybe you step out and you chase and you pursue and you apply and you get nose back. Some of you have given up praying for an issue in your life that you just feel like cannot be resolved, a wound that you won't heal from, a sin that you won't be given victory over. And it's, it's not that one day you and I just decide we get up, we have breakfast that's not an omelet, um, something American like French toast. I know it has French in the name, but surely they didn't come up with that. Um, eggs and bacon, right? And you decide, I'm done praying for this, Right? It just happens over time. It's a byproduct of spiritual discouragement, what Martin Lloyd-Jones would call spiritual depression. And make no mistake about it, we face an enemy in prayer. Because if Satan can't have you, he will at least see you be ineffective and discouraged and living with more doubt than faith. And many more of you are on the verge of giving up praying about important things in your lives, much less praying about a movement of God in the lives of people around you, in the life of our church. Can I just tell you this morning with the Apostle Paul from the heart of God, don't give up. Don't quit. And if you have re-engaged today, now, this afternoon, this evening, say, God, forgive me for making prayer more about me than it is about you. I'm going to come to you because you are good and faithful and just. And you not only invite me to come, you command me to come for my own good, to be connected to you. Prayer, in a sense, establishes the power lines between you and God. Christians are people who are centered in prayer. Not just consistent prayer, not just watchful prayer, but thankful prayer. Gratitude changes so much in my life and your life. If you ever meet somebody that's just unpleasant to be around, you've met somebody that lacks a lot of gratitude. Gratitude changes our, our countenance. Intentionally thinking about and naming the things you have to be grateful to God for can change your outset, and it can change uh, your mental landscape over the course of just a few minutes. 
Sam Storm says this, and I think he's right on about gratitude. He said, it's hard to be fearful when you are immersed in gratitude. It's hard to be fearful when you're immersed in gratitude. What are you fearful about? I gotta tell you, there's some things I'm fearful about this morning. There's some things that are weighing heavy on my mind and my heart. And I was thinking about this this morning. It is hard for that fear to stay engaged in our lives when we start pouring out our gratitude to God for who he is and how he moves, what he's done in the past and what we know he's doing now, seen and unseen. Storm says, it's hard to be fearful when you are immersed in gratitude. Thankfulness turns the human soul toward heaven, away from self. Thankfulness, by its very nature, requires that we fix our focus on the fact that God is and who God is and what God has done and will do. Thankful prayer is necessarily theocentric. Thankful prayer is necessarily theocentric. It is prayer that's centered in the person and work of God. It's prayer that pours out the need of dependent human beings, but is nonetheless focused on a dependable God. You, if you are a Christian, we as a church are to be prayer-centered. Paul goes on in verse three, he says, and pray for us as well. Pray for yourselves, but pray for us, particularly he and Timothy and the others that are doing the gospel work with them where they are. That God may open, now listen to this, listen to this. And I, I remind you, in case you need reminding, that Paul is in prison, likely chained to a Roman guard, free to move about, maybe uh, within a house or within a few houses, but he doesn't have the freedom to leave. He can receive visitors, he can write letters and send them, but he remains chained to a Roman guard. He doesn't pray for freedom, he doesn't pray for health, he doesn't pray for long life, he doesn't pray for his aunt's health. He asks that they pray that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. This is part of what it looks like to be Christ-centered, to not only be prayer-centered, but to be Christ-centered. We see here that Paul is saying, when you and I come to Christ, our entire lives are to be swept up in his person and his glory and his mission. So that whether we're in a hospital room or a nursing home or prison or our own house or a workplace we hate or a workplace we love, wherever we are, single, married, older, younger, our desire there is that Christ is glorified and that his message may be known. I want us to drop anchor just for a minute here. Because I think if we don't, we're going to miss something that's really significant about how God works in the lives of people. Let me just ask real quick, how many of you already have thought about people that you hope um, to be able to invite and to see them come to church next week for Easter? Family or friends, neighbors? Good, 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 good. I would ask you now, even as you're sitting here, to ask God to bring people to your mind. Now or later, 
Go, go, go through the text stream of your phone. Who have you texted over the last couple of weeks who you know good and well doesn't know Jesus? They're probably gonna come to church on Easter, right? Because it's America and we're in the South. So they're probably gonna say yes because it would look bad to say no. But you never know what God may do. You never know when God may take a cultural Christian and turn them into a regenerate, born-again, Christ-centered, redeemed, biblical follower of Jesus. I encourage you to be thinking about that, praying for that. Praying, as Paul said here, that God would open a door for our message. Now, notice, Paul doesn't say open a door for us to travel, open a door for us to go. He says open a door for our message. Paul is acknowledging here that you and I can preach and teach and talk to and be in conversation with people who don't know the Lord. And unless God opens a door for the message, they are not going to hear what we're saying. Are you with me? How many of you are married and have ever had a conversation with your spouse where they heard your words, but they did not hear what you were saying? Anybody been there? Yes. Sometimes so as to put myself before the judge of my own free will, I just tell Sharon, I'm sorry. Can you say that again? I drifted off as you were talking. I mean, I may be three feet from her, right? Let me give you some examples of what Paul is saying from Scripture so that you understand what I'm saying here about the desperation with which we have when it comes to sharing the love of Jesus with lost people. It's not about our charisma. It's not about our level of education. It's not about your biblical knowledge. It's not about just simply laying out the Romans road and then asking them. Something has to happen inside them. See a picture of this from Acts chapter 14. Verses 26 and 27. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. All that God had done through them, they were the means, but they were not the power. They were not the active agents in the transformation that was taking place as the gospel was going out to the Gentiles. Luke, the author of Acts, is very clear here that God had done it. God had done it through them, and he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Turn back a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, we see uh, the conversion of a woman that will be familiar to many of you, a woman named Lydia. As far as we know, Lydia was the first uh, convert to Christianity, to the Christian faith on the continent of Europe. Verse 13 of chapter 16 in Acts, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. So she, she already worshiped Yahweh, the God of the Jews. 
but she knew nothing of Christ. Look at what the Bible tells us. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Does it say Paul was so eloquent that she decided to say yes? No. Does it say that Paul's tract was so overwhelmingly convincing that she read it and checked yes? No. It says that the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, let me tell you why it must be this way, both from the Old Testament and from the New Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27 point toward the day in which God's great redeeming work through his Messiah and the coming of the Holy Spirit will produce a redeemed people, increasingly so from every tribe and every tongue, speaking particularly to Israel as they're looking toward their return from exile, but projecting out toward the work of God's Spirit in and through Christ. Look at verses 26 and 27 of Ezekiel 36. I, I, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is an Old Testament way of saying before Christ you are dead in your sins and your trespasses. No, no uh, ethnic connection can change that. No amount of good works can change that. No degree of growing up in a Christian home. God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. Can change that. The Bible says you and I have a heart of stone. And we have to have it replaced with a heart of flesh and the spirit of God. It's a work that only God can do. Uh, Paul gets even clearer about this and why it must be this way, why we must be praying that God would open a door for the message, for our words to be heard in the lives of those who are outside the redeeming grace of God right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The Apostle Paul says, the person without the Spirit... That's how the, the New Testament um, denotes a non-believer, a non-Christian. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot, cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. God must do an initial work in the heart and mind of a non-believer, for them to even understand and have an opportunity to respond in faith and conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying here, I am Christ-centered now. When I come to you and I need prayer, it's going to be about some personal things, but it is going to be largely Christ-centered that the person and work of Christ might advance. It's going to be with an understanding that without the Holy Spirit, whom Christ sends, the gospel is simply an empty series of sentences and words. That the lost individual is unable to understand, unable to, in fact, it's foolishness to them. 
It's crazy talk to them. Paul says believers are prayer-centered. Believers are Christ-centered. And and the expectation here when he says, for which I am in chains, is that you and I are proclaiming, if we're really sharing the gospel in life and in word, we are proclaiming a message that is subversive to the culture around us. That is subversive, subversive to any governance or any system of government in the world. It doesn't mean we're bad citizens. But it means our patriotism will be questioned. It has always been that way among Christians because they would not give their primary loyalty to the state, any state. Paul says his proclamation of the gospel, his living and spreading of the gospel has landed him in chains in Rome. Do you think it's not ever going to cost you anything? If it never costs you or me anything, Whatever we're sharing and whatever we're living is not the biblical gospel. It's going to cost you friends at times. Heck, being faithful to the gospel as a church will cost you church members at times. But you know what? God will bring new ones. He will birth new ones through the power of the Holy Spirit confirmed through baptism. Born again to Him. People who are prayer-centered, people who are Christ-centered. Finally, we're people who are mission-centered. That's who we are. That's who we are. Look at verse four, five, and six. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should, Paul said. Now, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. One of the things that Paul is doing here is he's assuming that you and I are going to be mixing with non-Christians, right? We just are. We're called by Jesus to love people, to live the way that Jesus did, where he didn't just love people that rejected him. He hung out with them. He listened to them. He communicated value to them. He loved them long enough that there was some measure of trust established. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. If, if the only contacts you have and the only friends you have are believers, can I just say that's not a victory for the kingdom of God. That's not the life that God has called you and called me to live. And I would encourage you if you struggle with that, because I'm a pastor, right? Like a professional Christian. Nothing more deadly and dangerous to your soul than that. You need to find places to be involved that puts you around non-believers so that you can be Christ's light, his love and his presence there. Because what happened when Jesus mixed with people and don't get all heretical and say, yeah, but he was God. What happened when Jesus mixed with people, it wasn't that he caught all of their sinfulness and brokenness. It's that they began to catch glimpses of God in his life. That's what happened. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. The language here is the picture of of snatching up a bargain. Going somewhere, finding something so good, you just grab it right away. Paul's saying, in a sense, don't waste your life. Don't waste the moments that God has given you. Don't waste the work day that God has given you. Don't waste the time with your friends, your family, your children that God has given you. Seize the opportunity Be centered in prayer, centered in Christ. 
so that you might understand how to live wisely in these times. Make the most of every opportunity. We, I was thinking this week about snatching up a bargain. I was at uh, Jake and Julie's house a couple of weeks ago, and Jake had made lunches for their kids for the next day for Judanella in these little bento boxes. If you don't know what bento boxes are, they're just, uh, they're really well-made, nice little lunch boxes. I guess they have them for adults too. Um, I know they do, but for kids, and uh, everything was just so in there, and he put them in the fridge, and I thought, that's it. That's going to solve all our problems at home, bento boxes. Um, so I got excited. I, I bought a, well, I went to Amazon first, the only place you go first, right? I went to Amazon, and they were on sale, which was the Lord affirming this decision, <laughs> all right? Because they're not cheap. And Julie told me, she said, they're great. We love them. Uh, we, these are new, but the ones we had before this lasted two years. Um, I was like, man, that's pretty awesome. So I got bento boxes for our twins. I sent them a picture four days after they arrived. The first one was broken. One of our twins in a fit of, uh, you know, original sin-fueled rage, uh, took it and slung it across the room onto the floor and broke it. I don't know what that has to do with anything except to say, Some things in life are going to be disappointing. Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble, even with bento boxes. But take heart, he's overcome the world. Paul says, make the most of every opportunity. Make the most of every opportunity. Verse 6, let your conversation always be two things, full of grace. Full of grace. Because church, this is how God deals with us. Full of grace. Seasoned with salt is the second thing. Salty, interesting, of substance. There's nothing worse. Well, this is a hyperbolic statement, but there's almost nothing worse on earth than a boring teacher. Should be an oxymoron. Paul says, be wise. Let your conversation be full of grace. Also, let it be seasoned with salt. Man, you know, you can lead a horse but you, to water, but you can't make them drink, right? But as a ranch kid, you can give them a salt block. They start looking that, they're going to drink. Sometimes your life, your conversation, your love and your grace for someone creates a thirst in them to understand more about why you are the way you are. Paul says we do this so that you may know how to answer everyone. Um, part of what Paul is assuming here is that the Holy Spirit will create interest in the lives of outsiders if verse 5 is being lived out. If you and I are making the most of our opportunities, we're living wisely, we are prayerful and Christ-centered, there are going to be times where God uses our life to create curiosity and interest in others. Now, um, I don't want you to miss the connection between prayer and these other two. Between being prayer-centered people and having people who value the right things the right way and people who live missionally, caring about the things that God cares and allowing that to drive our values rather than everything else that we're excited about. All these other things, right, they can be good and just and right in our lives. They just can't be primary. Um, 
You've heard me tell a story before of a man named Bill Toller, who I had as an interim pastor when I was a senior in high school. He was still there through part of my freshman year in college, but I was gone. Um, Deeply impacted me, but he told uh, a story once, a true story, being a young uh, PhD candidate in school, and he had just taken uh, a a pastorate um, at a small church outside of Waco while he was pursuing his PhD at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, the church, like many smaller churches that day, had a parsonage for him to live in. He'd, he would commute back and forth up Interstate 35, um, which was still being built at that time in Texas, to Fort Worth to work on his PhD. Um, and he said he, he, he got there and he began to, to move things out of his car. He said he didn't have much, but uh, he and his young wife began moving into the house. He said a deacon showed up. And got out, and he said he began to help and carry things in. And he said, Pastor, I want you to know that, that I'm, I'm here for, for anything that you need. I'll help you move this stuff. There's sick people you need to go visit. I'll go with you. There's anything that needs to be worked on at church. I'll come, and I'll help, and I'll work on it with you. And Dr. Toller said, uh, he said, I, you know, he said, I, I didn't mean to, but I, I must have looked so surprised. I looked kind of taken aback. And he said, the man said, I, I, can, see, I can see that you're a little nervous. Um, he said, Pastor, let me tell you why. I'm telling you this. He said, when, he said I'm, I'm in my late 50s now. He said, when I was a young man, he said, I moved out here. Um, he said, the, the place was growing. Um, there was a real boom going on. Houses going up everywhere. And he said, uh, I was a, a contractor. And he said, I, I hit the ground running. I began uh, to build houses and build subdivisions. He said, I wanted to be important and I wanted to make money. And he said, I did. He said, I built a lot of houses, a lot of subdivisions, and I became wealthy. He said, but I sacrificed my health. I lost my family along the way. My wife, my kids, she divorced me. Don't have a relationship with them. He said, eventually, doctor told me, you better slow down or you're going to die. So he said, I retired. I bought a little farm out here. He said, I'm well off. I don't have to, to work, but I go out and I work it during the day. He said, God and his just basic grace and goodness um, gave me a new family, a, a new wife, and uh, we had a, a little baby son, and he said, one morning I was uh, coming out to get my truck and go out to the farm, and he said, I got in my truck, was backing out, and I didn't see that my young son, two years old, had, had run out to say goodbye. He said, I didn't notice him, and I backed over him and backed right over his head, crushed his skull. He said, I uh, had a young man living next door to me, a Baylor student. He heard my screams as I got out of the truck in terror. My wife came out screaming, and He said, I grabbed my son, got in the truck with him, and he drove us quickly to the hospital. He said, on the way, he looked over at my son, unresponsive. And he said, sir, I don't know if you're a religious man, but if you are, you better pray. Because I don't think your baby boy has any chance at all to live. And he said, pastor, he couldn't have hurt me anymore if he'd have said anything else in the world to me, because the one thing he asked me to do was the one thing I couldn't do. He said, I'd long ago abandoned God, my faith, and prayer. I hadn't prayed in years. I'd sacrificed that on the altar of money and success. So we got to the hospital, went in. They rushed my boy back into surgery, and the lead physician, just before he walked back there, said, sir, if you're a praying man, you better pray. Because I give you no hope at all, none, that we're going to be able to save your son's life. And he said, Pastor, I did the only thing I could do. I found the chapel. 
in that hospital. I went in and hit my knees, and I began to cry out to God. He said, before I could even pray for my son, I had to confess years of greed and lust and self-centeredness, living a life about me and only me. And he said, I can't explain it, Pastor, but he said, the longer I prayed, the more I felt a sense that God was going to save my son. And he said, I asked God, I pled with God for the life of my boy and said, if you'll save my son's life, I will live a life for whatever years you give me left in full devotion to you. I see now the folly of my sin, the wasted years. He said, I got up off my knees, the sense that God had heard me. And I went back to the waiting area outside the surgical center. He said, after a while, the doctor came out and said, sir, he said, we can't explain it medically, but your son's taking a turn for the better. He said, but I've got to warn you, if for some reason he lives, he will be mentally disabled the rest of his life, never having an intellect or mental capacity above a one or two-year-old. This deacon told Dr. Toller, he said, Pastor, I, I knew I didn't have any right to do it. But I went back to that prayer chapel and I hit my knees again and I asked God and I begged God and I pleaded with God. I said, God, if you would allow my son not only to live, but in, in, in some major way at least, be relatively normal and functional, be able to live a life and enjoy life and know you and see you again, I'll show my gratitude and my complete devotion to you, to your church and to your glory for the rest of my life. He said, I now have a nine-year-old son, healthy as can be, passing all subjects in school, as normal as normal can be. I'm gonna tell you guys that I've, I've prayed for sick people until they died. I've prayed for marriages to be reconciled that ended in divorce. I've prayed for changes to take place in churches that God had placed me in as a pastor that didn't take place. But I've prayed some, and I've prayed enough to see God move in such a way that I will never, never renounce my faith in him in his goodness, and his power, and his glory. And it has not only by his grace changed certain circumstances, but has changed me and continues to change me as I submit needs to him. This is how prayer is linked to our values, to us being on mission. As you pray, God first and foremost changes you. And it's a long haul kind of thing. Because prayer is more art than science, and you're going to get frustrated. I'll just end with this, then I'll have a stand and pray. Um, a few weeks ago, we were going through an extremely difficult season with, uh, with our twins, three and a half years old. Um, and one night, Sharon was out, and I was uh, trying to get them down my 
leg was busted up and hurting, and, and it was just a, a horrid time with them in there. And I uh, was just had my hand on one of them, praying, praying, praying. Jesus settled his little heart, his little spirit, calm him, Lord. You know that he needs it. You know that we need it. You know that our home needs it. And I was praying and praying and praying, right? Because God says, be persistent, and I'll give you what you ask. And about 15, 16, 18 minutes into that, I was like, fine, God, I can put him down on my own. I can be miserable without any help from you. And I just was so frustrated. And I just stopped praying. And eventually, he went to sleep anyway. And the Lord and I made up. I asked him to forgive me. Um, but he can take that. Prayer doesn't work that way, right? Sometimes God will give you an instant answer. But over the long haul, it changes you. Who are you this week, Holy Week, at Easter, and next week, and the week after, you are a prayer-centered people, a Christ-centered people, and a mission-centered people. That's who God's called you to be. Let's stand. In just a minute, the band's going to play and lead us in worship as we respond and reflect before God. I invite any of you who are baptized believers to step out anytime while we're singing as you feel led Observe communion at the front or the back. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. And, and as you do so, you are reminded that we come into worship, not primarily to express ourselves, but primarily to be formed by Christ into his people by the power of his broken body and his shed blood. Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.